this week to what you might call combined macro and micro history, a new work that follows 12 great anthropologists over 50 years from the 1880s to the 1930s and the discipline that evolved out of their remarkable lives. What did they think they were doing? They all lived with and observed Indigenous people in what were then considered some of the most far-flung and exotic corners of the globe, from Brazil's impenetrable jungles to Arctic snowfields and beyond, places above all, though, not, quotes, tainted by modern development. Again, why do this? Well, the answer's complicated, and the English writer Lucy Moore has wrestled with some of them in her new book called In Search of Us, And I'm happy to welcome her to Saturday Extra to discuss this fascinating work. Hello there. Hello. Uh, I have Uh, to ask you what led you to write this book and base it around these great characters. Um, do you know, it was suggested to me. I've written other books um, in the past, which I thought of myself. And in this case, somebody who worked um, for a, uh, a museum in London suggested that uh, the 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 moments of field work which really cover this period from the kind of 1890s through to the 1930s the sort of first stage of anthropological field work might make a great book she was really thinking of malinowski um mm. sailing up to the trobriand islands um and in the introduction to his book about that written in 1922 which comes out in 1922 he talks about being dropped off um in a sort of little bit of paradise all alone for an adventure to kind of discover the roots of mankind. And um, so it was an idea of exploring that sense of adventure and exploration, uh, which now we look at in a very different way. Well, quite. I mean, I think there was an effort, was there not, correct me at any point if I get my language wrong, to sort of create a science of society based on human universals, as it's, I think you describe it, which is a very neat way of, because it's a very diffuse, it's a diffuse discipline. I did it at uni and I loved it, but I had, uh, it was very subtle, shall I say, in learning about it. <laughs> Yes, it does. It covers literally everything. It's the the history of the study of mankind. One modern anthropologist described thinking about anthropology as a bit like thinking about a kind of symphony orchestra, lots of different bits, doing lots of different things in lots of different ways. Uh, But at this stage, um, you've had the armchair anthropologists who are the, the great sort of Uh, General Pitt Rivers, Bernard Tyler, James Fraser in Oxford and Cambridge. And they're very much working from libraries in their armchairs. People send material back to them. And they then uh, worked out theories of what they thought um, primitive man was and how societies had developed. And then you get in the late 19th century, a rush of sort of scientific a scientific approach to these studies. And anthropology really emerges as a discipline in its own right. And so the the first uh, great anthropologists in this period come from scientific backgrounds. The one uh, who went to Australia and studied in what were then part of the colony of Australia was Alfred Haddon, who went out to study mollusks in New Guinea. And he then realised there was this incredibly rich culture there, which needed to be studied before it disappeared. And it was very much a sense that these cultures were just going to be eradicated by the onwards march of progress and somebody needed to study them. And then you get someone like Margaret Mead in America calling primitive society essentially a laboratory for these, what they saw themselves as as social scientists to study the changing patterns of society. And in that 
way they thought in a very idealistic way that they would be able to learn lessons for how better we could live in the future. I mean, they were seeking um, noble aims, weren't they? They wanted to stress how much humans shared, even if they lived in dramatically different settings. So it it had this quite idealistic tone behind it. I don't know whether they lived that out, but that was the, the sort of driver, wasn't it? It was very much the driver, and it was very much the idea that Um, the differences between societies from a sort of a person in a um, a, a South American tribe wearing a bit of string around their middle who's never seen a book and never um, sat at a table is exactly the same as a person wearing a top hat and spats. And what's really interesting about this book and also the idea that they are trying to demystify the idea that race is in some sense, sense biological race was cultural. It was not biological. So, Because colonialism was a really tricky thing for them to manage, wasn't it? Sometimes, you know, anthropology being called, has been called the handmaid of colonialism. So they had to sit, sit there and, and watch and observe, did they? They weren't supposed to interfe- interfere or intervene, observe without judgment. Was that it? Yes, absolutely. So in some ways, anthropology needed colonialism more than colonialism needed anthropology if that makes sense, because uh, for certainly for for British-speaking anthropologists, the British Empire provided an incredible arena in which to practice their science. And that's why so many people, you know, Australia was the place to be for for many of them or or the Australian territories. Um, And it was thought and and written about in the sort of science of how to do good anthropology and how to do good field work, you needed to go somewhere five to ten years after European settlers had arrived because by then the native people who lived there would be used to foreigners and be able, you could could learn the language and then you could interact with them. Colonial administrators and missionaries, who are the two other people who might have been there, weren't good at collecting the material. They might collect material objects, but they weren't good at collecting the spoken material because they had a a mission there already, because they had ulterior motives. The missionaries wanted to convert the people. They wanted to change the way they thought fundamentally. And the colonial administrators wanted to assimilate them into the colonies and make them sort of working and productive members of it, which also meant changing them completely. So the anthropologists who could go, sit, listen, find out, you know, what was going on in these societies were considered incredibly helpful, or they liked to present themselves as being helpful to the colonies because they were going to advise the colonial administrators on how best to um, administer these people. And in fact, it really didn't help anybody very much because they got there and they listened, but then the colonial administrators basically did what they wanted anyway. Look, uh, Lucy Moore's my guest, and she's written this uh, book about some mesmerising people in search of us, uh, 12 of the great anthropologists. Herodotus, you know, the great uh, Roman writer, he's often called the father of history. Uh, Is he also seen as the father of anthropology? You you, you wrestle with this a bit. Yes, absolutely. He's, I mean... Anthropology in this sense as fieldwork has been going on since the earliest times. In fact, that's kind of the basis of how cultures change and develop. We look at other societies, we observe them, and we we assimilate with them, essentially. And that's the great propelling force, really, of cultural change through history. And so 
it's what we do instinctively, really, is is look at other people, see what they're doing, observe. Do we like it? Do we not like it? Do we want to <laughs> go into battle mm. for some of these things? Or do we want to learn from the other people and, and bring our two cultures closer together? Let's hop over a couple of these sort of definitions because it might help people. So there's this is a growth in something that became known as anthropology. But ethnological societies were established in the early 1800s when there was all of this efflorescence, you know, of interest and curiosity. What's the difference between ethnology and anthropology? Gosh, it is such a tricky one. And I kept, as I was writing the book, kept having to go back to those definitions. Essentially, they're incredibly close together. Anthropology means the science or the study of man. And ethnology means the science or study of groups and and tribes, essentially. And it's just a sort of earlier version, really meaning the same word. Ethnology often has to do with material culture. So it'll be objects and that sort of thing, which obviously people through the 19th century were collecting without much idea of their significance to the people they were taking them from, or, or, you know, they just saw them as you you might collect a a totem pole or, or, you know, a shield or a a canoe or something like that without realising the importance it would have to the people you were taking it from. One of your interests is Daisy Bates, who was a very interesting person to to include, a young British woman who moved to Australia in 1882, and we've actually looked at her on the program before. Uh, She's so interesting. Why did you decide to include her in your book? Because she wouldn't have thought of herself as an anthropologist. No, I I didn't. I I chose to use her partly because she was sort of came into opposition, really, with someone called um, Alfred Radcliffe Brown, who was a very famous British anthropologist, um, quite controversial. He's one of the early um, practitioners of what was called functionalism at this stage in anthropology. He's very austere and rigorous, devoted to the scientific method. He absolutely looked at the people he was studying as subjects, scientific, uh, you know, almost as if they, a bit like um, Alfred has his his uh, colleagues in the natural science, sciences looking at animals or mollusks or, or, you know, plants or something like that. And he comes to Australia in 1910, sent by the University of Cambridge, and he's put in touch with Daisy Bates, who's going to guide him through uh, the areas that by then she's been working in for over a decade in Western Australia to meet the, the tribes that she's been working with. And she absolutely, as you say, was not academic, would not have thought of herself as an anthropologist, but she did do what anthropologists do, which is sit with and speak to and learn about the people that she worked with. She was immersed. She was practicing um, participant observation before it even existed as a notion. And so I was fascinated by the contrast between the two of their their uh, methods. He he, he really took note. He just thought she was a sort of an amateur collector, didn't he? Absolutely. He he dismissed all of her work as being completely unfit to be used in the book that she had been told she might be able to be part of that he was producing on this tour. He was, I mean, he was completely, as some, as a colleague said, impenetrably wrapped in his own conceit. Um, he he really doesn't come across well at all in any of the in any of the sources. And, and by contrast, Daisy Bates, who completely self-taught and with incredible courage, just and and sort of 
austerity herself. I mean, she just lived in the bush for years and years and years with people that she valued and loved, I'm sure, as individuals, although she doesn't write about them that much as individuals. But she, her life was given validation by the work she did with these people. And I just mm. really was touched by how, as, if anthropology is a science, she was also doing it, but she took the science out of it and that made it much more human. Yes, and, and look, another chap, as we wind to a close, is dedicated to the real giant of anthropology, Margaret Mead. And of course, she set particularly new standards with her travels to Samoa. Um, has she lasted, as it were? Like, you know, has there been a real uh, re-evaluation of her work or not? Well, she went to Samoa and she famously wrote a book um, about teenagers' sort of love and, and, and growing up, adolescence in, in, in Western Samoa. And it transformed American culture, really, when she published it in the 20s. It, 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 it told people that basically sex before marriage was okay um, and it, 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 she was using anthropology very much as a, she was studying the unfamiliar as we've talked about just before in order to bring those lessons home and alter her society at home that she thought needed changing. So in many ways her idealism was not about bettering the people that she was observing, it was about taking the lessons of their culture and applying them to her own. And she was she was evangelical about women, uh, women's rights, and particularly within relationships that 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 you know that she thought that she had been brought up in a patriarchy, which was very. Um, which condemned any kind of individuality, particularly within relationships and, and, and a kind of sexual life. You know, she was married several times. She lived with women for much of her life. She was a, a free thinker and a free liver um, at a time when most people really weren't. And she believed that the lessons that she was bringing back from the culture she studied would help her change her own society. And so for me, that that is not, you know, it's interesting. It's absolutely fascinating. And she's a brilliant writer and a brilliant communicator. But because she had this agenda, I I think she's been sort of reappraised a little bit because of that. It was so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having an agenda, but, um, and certainly not hers, you know, there's, there's nothing mm. wrong with what she was trying to bring, bring about. But she, um, I think she tried to to, to steer the material to support her argument. And, you know, there's been debates about that. After she died, um, an anthropologist went into Samoa and said, of course, it's absolutely ridiculous. Samoa was completely Christian. When she went there, the people were just, the girls that she interviewed were just children and they were talking about sex in a very free and, and sort of funny way because they thought that's what she wanted to hear. I think the truth lies probably somewhere in between. You know, she does sort of talk using the laboratory conditions, her words, provided by a, quotes, primitive society that lacked the, quotes, civilised complexities of written language and history and organised religion. And I, I suppose really that's what I'm intrigued by. Um, there's a lot of rank, isn't there, and hierarchy in anthropology, even oh, though yes. they say there isn't. <laughs> Absolutely. And particularly at this time, I mean, Margaret Mead writes home to her sister, I'm treated as a princess of a visiting village wherever I go. Malinowski delights in being carried around in a chair by his bearers, like the the the, the princes in um, in the Trobriand Islands. They absolutely had no idea that that this was what they were doing. But when we look at it now with modern eyes, you just think how how awful of them to presume their superiority. It's so deeply entrenched, and then they have no idea they're doing it. Um, and of course. 
I suppose in some ways, I mean, they really thought these societies were going to actually disappear. And now I think we're much more concerned with allowing people to live in the way they want to live within within those communities that have been less touched by Western civilization. I mean, God, one just prays that some of them survive after all we've done mm. to destroy them, really. But, but what um, about in, going in back their... to societies to, to watch the ad- arrival of education, for instance? I mean, that was one of the real things I got out of thinking about this book. You know, does modern anthropology consider the study of groups that are being educated in the process of that? Is that considered part of the remit or not? I think this is something that begins in this period. So you have um, Audrey Richards, who goes out to Africa um, in the 30s, and she's very focused on studying a society, um, the, the Bemba people in modern Zambia, who are being transformed by their contact with um, the British Empire. And she is can completely see the negative things that are happening, and she wants to help them you know, live better lives and not have their society so kind of taken apart by by contact with modern industrialization and that sort of thing but uh nowadays people study mostly their own societies so we have a different a different view of it and i think it's less historical um in this period they're very much looking at the kind of remnants of what they saw as primitive society in order to to work out sort of where where societies had come from. And now it's, it's obviously much more to do with studying societies as they are and as they exist more today. Soci- sociology, really. Mm. Yes. Uh, look, thank you very much indeed. It's quite thought-provoking uh, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Geraldine. Lucy Moore, she's the author of In Search of Us. It's published by Atlantic Books. And I apologise... Herodotus was a Greek historian, not a Roman historian. You, you have note somebody has made me uh, look that up. Quite correct. Apologise for that. Now, thank you very much for the uh, to the Saturday Extra team this week: Sky Doherty, Belinda Summer, Isabel Summerson, and Gillian Bennett, and also Anne Marie de Betancourt um, on on the tools. Now, stay with RN because at eleven o'clock the music show is coming to you live from the beautiful gardens of Botanic Park for Worm Adelaide. Robbie Buck will be speaking to banjo stars Bella Fleck and Abigail Washburn, a Canadian group fusing Turkish and Baroque instruments, which sound fabulous, and more. So if you can't make it to the real event, this is surely the next best thing. I'm Geraldine Duke. Thank you very much for your company. Have a great weekend and a big hello coming up shortly to Jonathan Green. Bye-bye. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.